All right, if you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6 will continue this expositional study through the book, the chapter rather, chapter number 6 of Romans. And we've been dealing with the principles and the concepts of being baptized into the death of Jesus Christ, what the implications of those are, what it means to be baptized into Christ. And this morning, we're going to be looking specifically at the subject of walking in newness of life. What is it to walk in the newness of life? Uh, Look with me at Romans chapter 6, and let's just begin in verse uh, number 4. He says, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice those words again that Paul writes in verse number four. He says that we are buried with him by baptism into his death. As being dead and buried, Christ appeared to the Jews and to the onlookers when he was placed in that tomb to be dead, to be no more, to have been removed from the presence of society. But to those who were in God and those who are spiritual, we realize and understand that that burial into that tomb was only a temporary burial. And because the promises and the prophecies of the word of God teach us that Christ would, in fact, raise again from death. And so to those unbelieving eyes, it must have appeared as if Jesus Christ had lost. It must have appeared that God the Father must have lost. But to those who know Christ, we know that that is one of our greatest signs of victory is that Jesus Christ did, in fact, raise again from the grave. As Christ was placed into that tomb, of course, in those hours and in those days, as he was gone from the eyesight of people, uh, people were no longer taking notice of him. Uh, The world, for those three days, for much as we can tell, it went on. Christ was placed in a tomb and society went on. And for three long days, uh, even the disciples at times began to wonder what has happened. And maybe even to their eyes, they may have even begun to question, is Christ really going to do as he said he would do? Jesus was showing us that there was in fact a death. And it was his death. Uh, We always need to be certain that we understand that Jesus Christ was not in a deep sleep. 
Uh, he was not just hiding out in a borrowed tomb. He died, and that is a part of the Christian doctrine which must be affirmed. It is not something that you can be um, half-hearted on. You could say, well, I, I sort of believe Christ died. I sort of believe he might have been dead, but there's a part of me that thinks that, no, maybe he was just in a deep sleep. No, he died, and it's crucial that he died or the resurrection uh, really has no power. Uh, redemption has no power because the fact that he rose again from the grave was the evidence, was the proof that God the Father was completely satisfied with the demands and the ransom that was paid by Christ our Lord. So Christ, of course, appeared to have lost. All strength appeared to be gone. But yet we understand that it is in the glory of the cross and it is in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ we rejoice in. We rejoice in his death. Now again, difficult to rejoice in death, but yet without their death, there is no resurrection. And without a resurrection, there is no salvation. And without salvation, there is no hope for you and I today. So Paul, as he's writing to believers, again, he acknowledges, and he doesn't say this might be the case. He says, therefore, we are buried with him in baptism unto death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It's important to understand that the death of Christ was the means by which sin was destroyed. The death of Christ was the means by which sin was destroyed. His burial is the proof of the reality of his death. So believers are also represented as being buried with him by baptism into his death, picturing that they really did die with him. And if we've been buried with him, then we also will not remain in the grave. We also will come forth just as Christ arose from the dead, so shall we. Baptism, as we've learned over the last couple of weeks, is a picture of our complete deliverance from the guilt of sin. It isn't saving, it's a picture of what has already taken place. We've been buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in what? In the newness of life. Every time I perform a baptism, the last words I say to the person being brought up out of the water is walk in the newness of life. Their sins were not being removed at that moment. It is a picture of what has taken place, not just symbolically, but in reality. They have, in fact, been raised from the dead. And this is the account in which Paul says that as Christ has been raised from the dead, so shall you as believers we are to walk in newness of life. Paul uses that word, therefore, because we are in fact dead with Christ. We are buried with him. We are participants in communion with him in his burial, which represents the destruction of sin. Again, Christ's death was the means in which sin was destroyed by baptism into death. Now, Paul uses this terminology in Colossians 2.12 where he says this, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. 
The very power that raised Christ from the dead is the very power that will raise you from the dead. Baptism not only is a picture or a representation of our death to sin and the the mortifying of our sin, but it also is a picture of our progress and our perseverance. Burial always implies a death. And raising up always implies something being brought again back to life. In similar manner, that like as Christ was raised from the dead, after the death and the burial of Christ, there followed his resurrection. So for every believer who's died in, in baptism into Christ, that is also our fate. But think about this already. If you are a child of God, you have already been raised from death. That's why Paul writes in Corinthians that death has lost its sting. Because you have already been raised to walk in newness of life, even though you have not physically died yet. It's the same concept, he says in Ephesians, that we're also seated in heavenly places. Not that we will be seated, but we're already seated there. How can we be seated in heaven if we're seated here? Same concept. It's not that we will be resurrected. We have been resurrected. Death to sin through Christ So we also will be participants in this glorious resurrection. One day there will be a reunion of the body and the soul, but we have already been resurrected in him. Paul also writes how this was all accomplished there in verse 4, by the glory of the Father. Uh, This also means the power of the Father. Again, Paul writing in Colossians 1.11 says, "...strengthened with all might according to his glorious power." unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. God is said to have raised Christ by His power. 1 Corinthians 6.14 And God hath both raised up the Lord and will raise us also by His own power. 2 Corinthians 13.4 For though He was crucified through weakness, yet He liveth, how? By the power of God. He goes on to say, for we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Paul is stating in those verses that Christ is said to live by the power of God. He was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father. And then Paul ends that verse by saying, even so we. I have that circled in my Bible. You may not mark in your Bible, and that's okay, but that phrase is so important. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. What does it mean to walk in newness of life? It means to walk in a new way. It means to be moved by new principles, to be moved by new motivations, to aim at new goals, new ends. Not temporal, frivolous goals, but to press towards goals of knowing Christ. What will that do as we press towards new goals and are moved by new principles? It will bring forth new fruits of holiness. If you live for Christ, if you walk in the newness of life, your Christian life cannot be without fruit. If your life is not producing fruit, you are not in Christ Jesus. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. There is no such thing as a believer who produces no fruit in their life. 
Paul says in Romans 7, verse 6, he says, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of letter. Now, Paul was also talking about we're delivered from the, the demand of the law that we could not meet. Christ has met that law, but now we're to walk in the newness of spirit. Paul continues in verse 5, he says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now Paul is not speaking of anything new here. He's just taking what he's already said and he's giving us another illustration. He's illustrating what this looks like by giving us a picture of grafting or planting. He's already taking it for granted that believers know what he is saying. They're familiar with this. He's used terms like, even so we know, or you know these things, or don't you already know? And that's a continuing of this thought. He says, we have been planted together. How? In the likeness of Christ's death. To be made in the likeness of, or to be planted in, is to be, be being made conformable to. Paul's speaking of sanctification here. He's saying that if we have been planted in the likeness of Christ's death, then we are going to be made conformable unto him. This is what Paul meant when he wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of what? His resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Christ died and believers die also. We die a natural death, and Christ died, of course. He died a natural death. He died in our place. But we also die, and there is a spiritual death. We've talked about temporal death and spiritual death over the last couple of weeks. But realize that when Christ died, he was paying the sacrifice that was required, or the, the ransom that was required by a holy God. His suffering was our suffering. It is by him and through him that we are found righteous before a holy God. And we who've been planted are being conformed into Christ's image. That's our sanctification. He says, not only are we planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also, look what he says, be in the likeness of his resurrection. You might phrase it this way, we shall be of his resurrection. We shall be of his resurrection. Believers are not only dead with Christ, but we're risen with Christ. Paul writes in Colossians 3.1, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. It's wonderful to know that when Paul even spoke and wrote those words, where Christ was at that time is where Christ is right now. He's still at the right hand. He's not changed his location. He's still there. What Paul said is still true. He's at the right hand. We are partakers of a resurrection that resembles his. Christ rose from the dead to a new life. So we are to rise and walk in the newness of life. Going back to being dead to the law that Paul talked about in Romans 7, we are to walk in newness of life, not in 
our dead works. We are no longer to try to walk in deadness, to walk in dead works. We are raised and being quickened by a power that comes from Christ and his resurrection. That's what Paul is stating, that what Christ has done and what Christ is has been grafted into you. It's been planted into you. You receive that and it revives it. We receive it and we become part of him. That's what the unity and the union with Christ is. It's not just some theory. Believers in Christ are actually grafted into Christ. We are one with him. But why does he say that believers shall be? Why does he use future tense here, especially with regard to the resurrection? If you notice carefully, verse 5, he says, we have been planted. That speaks of present tense. But he, interestingly, he says we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, suggesting that this is something not yet. But if we already believe upon Christ, we are truly already planted and we are already partakers of his resurrection. Paul here speaks in future tense and he has a reason for this. He uses the term we shall be, then we are or have been because that work of sanctification, that work that is moving us more towards the likeness of Christ is still ongoing. We are not yet in our glorified, perfected bodies nor will you ever be, but we are being made conformable. We are becoming more and more aversion to sin. We don't want sin. We, We don't want the pollution of it. We don't want the corruption of it. We don't want anything to do with it. And sanctification will always drive you closer to Christ. If your sanctification is driving you away from Christ or into the filth of the world, you're not really being sanctified. Sanctification is being made conformable to Christ, not conformable to sin. But he speaks of this in future future tense because we are continuing this progress. We are growing more and more in sanctification. In verse 6, Paul introduces the words that we often use and you hear us talk about often. He says, knowing this. Again, Paul's writing to believers. As we've said, Romans 6 is not so much evangelistic as it is edifying to the church. Knowing this, do you know this? What do you get ready to say? Do you know this? He says, knowing this, our old man is crucified with him. Crucifixion means death. Our old man died, should have died with Christ that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. The old man here is meant the corrupt and polluted nature which we received directly from Adam. Original sin. The first man. Paul, when he's talking to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, 23 with regard to the old man, He says that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt. Corrupt according to what? He goes on, he says, according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So he talks about the old man and the deceitful lust and the corruption 
And he says, yet be renewed. The old and the new man are polar opposites. Probably a terrible illustration, but there is polar opposites as the north and the south pole. They're just, they're totally different. They're not the same in any way, shape, or form. The new man is the image of God that's being sanctified in us. Remember, sin corrupted and was a corruption of the image of God. Every human being was made in the image of God. Sin corrupts that image. The old man is the corruption of the image of God. It shows us the universal pollution and corruption of every person who lives. No, nobody has escaped from original sin of Adam. We're all guilty. We're all without words before a holy God and apart from Jesus Christ, we have nothing to offer. Paul uses a term that he's very familiar with, is crucified. Many of you know Galatians 2.20. Paul says what? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. But Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul in Galatians is speaking the exact principles we're talking about here in Romans 6 this morning. He's talking about being dead with Christ. He's talking about being risen with Christ. And he gives those glorious truths. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you are even the least bit aware of Christ's love for you and him giving himself for you, we ought to respond with a desire to walk in newness of life. Paul also uses a phrase, the body of sin. Notice the old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. The body of sin is very similar to the terminology he used when he described the old man. Now, throughout Scripture, we see the corrupt nature being referred to in a couple of different ways. First of all, we see it just simply called the body. In Romans 8.13, Paul says, For if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. The deeds of the body, he's talking about the old man. You're not living according to the deeds of the old corrupt nature anymore. Sometimes he refers to this corrupt nature as the body of death. Romans 7.24, we all know these words. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul despised the old man in him. He hated his presence. He despised the fact that he still was doing the things he didn't want to do, and he still was not doing the things that he should be doing. Paul never speaks of himself in present perfect tense where he says, I am sinless. No, but he hated that old man. 
He hated that body of sin. He hated the body of death. Here, it's called the body of sin. One commentator put it this way, that the body of sin, just think about it as a mere mass and lump of filthiness. It's not just one sin, it's all sin. It's with respect to the entire body of sin, the particular lust and the motions and the activities of our old nature. Paul sometimes refers to those lusts and corruption of our old nature. He uses the word members. In Colossians 3, verses 5 through 10, he says that exact phrase. He says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Now he gives a graphic description of the filthiness, this lump, this mass of pollution, what it contains. He says, mortify you therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. In the which ye also, notice he says, ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. He, he acknowledges there was a time when you were walking in these things. And today, you may sit here today and you say, I, I was never a fornicator. I was never in uncleanness and I never had inordinate affection. I never I was guilty of evil concupiscence or covetousness. But yet he says, you all walked in that at some time. But now, two glorious words, almost as glorious as even so we. But now, a distinctive line in the sand. This is what you were. You were living according to that giant lump and mere mass of filthiness. But now, now what? Now ye also put off one of these. That's not what he says. All these. See, we think we impress God when we put off our little pet sin. God never says, put off the one sin that's your pet sin, the one sin that you enjoy so much. Just put that one off. No, Paul says, through the authority of the Word of God, put it all off. Anything that's in that mass and lump of corruption and filthiness, mortify it. Kill it. Put it off. But then he also goes on and gives us a, a more acceptable, I would say, sins that we're going to recognize. He not only says, this is what you used to do, but now he says, put off these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him, that created him. Could you imagine if we just took for a Bible study assignment, just take Colossians 3, 5 through 10 and meditate on that for a couple weeks? Can you imagine how, how deep the Spirit would take us 
thinking about those truths that Paul writes about the old man and the new man. How we'd be confronted to think about the mass and the lump of filth and corruption that's in our life that we're not putting off. That's what Paul has in mind. He says, when you walk in the newness of life, you're not walking according to that mass of corruption anymore. You're not, you're not interested in that filth anymore. Now you're walking in a whole different spirit. Paul uses very strong words. He says that the body of sin might be destroyed. By my own conviction, and my own confession, in my own life, there's been times where, yes, I want to put off the body of sin. I want it away from me. But I haven't been willing to actually want to destroy it. See, we, we like as Christians to think we're accomplishing if we just put the sin in a closet. But we're not destroying it. We're not killing it. It's our pet. Sadly, we're actually nurturing it. When you, don't ref when you refuse to kill a sin, it's because you love it. It's because you're nurturing it. It's because it's bringing you pleasure. That's why we won't destroy it. We don't destroy things that we love. But yet, Paul says that it might be destroyed, not hidden, not put away from plain sight, but destroyed. Now notice, he, keeps, he goes further. You know, preachers today make some people mad. The Apostle Paul would have made people, everywhere he went, they would have always been mad at him. He's always talking about our personal life. Sin's not personal. Sin is an abomination to God. And your sin is never just only your sin. Your sin affects everyone else around you. Not just the people you're married to or your children. Everybody's affected by your sin and mine. Now what's supposed to be happening through this being made conformable is that sin should be continually being weakened more and more and more in you until it's finally destroyed. Paul says that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now why does he say serve sin? Because we used to do that. Before you were regenerate, before you were converted, you were a servant of sin. And Paul says that those who are unregenerate are still servants of sin. I think this is very important that those who continue to serve sin not only act in sin, but are acted by it. Sin acts upon them. We often think about sin as just the act of sin. And all of us, I think, agree with that. When we sin, it's an act. But do you realize that sin also acts upon you? It's where we get our motions and our movements, and it's what leads us to do and do, to say the things that we shouldn't do and not do the things we should do. Paul, if you want to turn there this morning, Paul, in the book of Titus, in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, speaks about this again, about what we once were. He says in verse 3 of Titus 3, for we ourselves also were, past tense, or we might say apart from God's saving grace, sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness 
and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. We're no longer servants of sin. That's why Paul says from henceforth in Romans, we're no longer servants of sin. Now drop down again in Romans 6, and we'll cover this in the next few weeks, but Paul deals with this later, but I think it's, I think it's imperative we introduce it here. Romans 6, verse 16, again, another know ye not phrase. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. That means there's only two masters that we can serve. We're either servants of righteousness or we're servants of sin. You and I are either servants of righteousness or we're servants of sin. Paul, again, back in our text that we're pulling apart today, uses that phrase again, for he, verse 7, that is dead, is freed from sin. Now, he's not only freed from it, but he's free from the guilt of it. We understand the the sanctifying position here that we're freed from death. The wages in his death, but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But we're also freed not only from it positionally, but we are to be freed from it practically that we should not be in the service of sin. It should no longer be our master. He that is freed from sin means you are also dismissed from the authority of sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you. It's being dead to sin, not just from it and from its effects, but from the service to it. That's an important key. We have, we have a lot of false doctrine out there that teaches, do you want to be free from the guilt of sin, which means you get to go to heaven, but you, don't ha- you can live in service to sin as long as you prayed the prayer and got things right before God. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. See, true conversion, true regeneration also removes us from the service of sin. We're either servants of righteousness or we're servants of sin. Now, Peter, interestingly, uses a similar phrase about sin not having dominion. 1 Peter 4.1, Peter says this, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. 
So what should our mindset be regarding sin? To cease from it. To not be servants of it. To live as if we truly are dead to it. Something that is dead to us, it has no life in it. Something that's dead is not still living, but put behind a door, hidden under a mat. It's dead. Peter says you should arm yourselves the same way, that you should be dead to sin. It has no part of you. Now, verse 8, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. He returns back to what he's been talking about. Baptism into his death, resurrection. If we have fellowship with Christ in his death, we have reason to believe that we will not only have fellowship with him now, but we'll have fellowship with him in the resurrection and in eternal life. We shall live with Christ, but we're also right now living with him. It's just like we've learned. Eternal life is not something you get when you close your eyes and draw your last breath here on this earth. You already possess eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's already a present possession. Paul returns back in verse 9, another knowing. (laughs) Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Paul says here in verse 9, you know you have an example in Christ. Copy yourself after Christ's example. Christ rose again in our resurrection. And in our salvation, we are never to be under the power or dominion or authority of something that kills. Sin kills. When he died unto sin once, it's a reference directly to Christ, of course, he died once. Paul Speaking of what Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. When Christ rose again from the dead, he lived with God his Father forever in this immortal, endless life. There, it is an indissolvable union between the Father and the Son, and there's the same indissolvable union between Jesus Christ and us. If you are in Christ, that union can never be dissolved if you are truly in Christ. That's what Paul has in mind here. Likewise, verse 11, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ is still the example here. So in like manner, we must reckon or put it to our account to think of it this way, that by the virtue or by the means of Christ's death, we are now dead to sin. And in like manner, by the the means and the, the death and the burial of Christ, we are also alive unto God. We have two titles. We're dead unto sin and alive unto God. That's what walking in newness of life is. Dead unto sin Alive unto God. Dead and yet living. One of life's great great quandaries, right? How can something be dead and yet alive? We're supposed to be walking examples of that. We're dead to sin, 
but we're alive, living unto God, not only, not only in this world, but in the everlasting life to come. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. After the example, the manner of Christ who lives and dies no more, we also will live and will die no more. Planted, engrafted into a living Savior is what we are. We are alive unto God. Everything we have received spiritually, we have received because of the merits and the basis of his righteousness. So this baptism that Paul's been talking about teaches us not only of the reality of what's taken place, but the necessity of us personally dying to sin. Folks, just to, to apply this quickly, we ought to live as if we have been buried and we are dead to all ungodly and unholy pursuits. They should be removed from your thinking that this is not what a person walking in newness of life pursues after. This is not what believers make their life goal. If, if your goals in life are matching the unbelieving world, you may need to reassess who or what you're living for. If you're finding your goals are running parallel with the world's ungodly goals, there's something wrong with the aim of your life. If you're looking for sinful, a sinful end, a sinful goal, there's something wrong when we've been risen to walk with God in the newness of life. Now, there are those who would say, well, I have professed faith in Christ. And maybe they have shown some evidence along the way, but they've never truly been born again. There are many, many who have said, Lord, I know you. Lord, I prayed unto you. Lord, I profess to know you, yet they are still dead in their trespasses and sins. Paul, as he's been teaching us through this, and even how we'll look next week and continue this, says there is more than just word speak happening here. Anybody can say they're a follower of Christ. But a follower of Christ is dead to sin and alive unto God, walking in the newness of life. Amen.